was it bad? What was it like working with him, working with her? You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi. This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. And today, I am so glad to welcome my guest, one of Broadway's best living directors, the great James Lapine. James Lapine has shepherded countless fabulous shows to Broadway, including Sunday in the Park with George, Into the Woods, Falsettos, Act One, Dirty Blonde, The Revival of Annie, Passion, Golden Child, and most recently, Flying Over Sunset. It was a great thrill to be able to speak to him. So now, without further ado, James Lapine. And so I'd love to start by asking you, um, I know your original sort of field was the one of design, but were there directors or writers other than the ones you worked with who inspired you? Oh, uh, I have to give this some thought. Other directors that inspired me. Um, well, you know, I wasn't that inveterate a theater goer. So um, I was inspired in those days by the, the avant-garde theater uh, group, mostly all being downtown artists like Richard Schechner, these are probably names you've never heard of. Uh, Meredith Monk, Robert Wilson. Um, uh, well, there's a whole list of them. Uh, and I think that's what, because they were visually oriented as much as language oriented and into much more abstract kind of theater than, uh, than actually, sadly, you don't see much anymore. And because of this uh, background in design, are you very involved in the design of your shows or more so than you might? Oh, uh, well, I am. I don't know what other, how other people, Beowulf could probably tell you more about that. But yeah, I mean, because when I write, I write with a visual sense in a way. I know what I, I see what I want to see on the stage as I write it in a way. So of course, but someone like Beowulf Borat will take that, but he'll find his own way into it. And uh, isn't his set marvelous for- Yes, yeah. It really is. He's an extraordinary collaborator. So um, uh, each each show dictates his own, um, I guess, uh, both style visually, but also the sense of collaboration that, that comes out of it. Yeah. So they're not all, they're all different. Every, every designer you work with has a different kind of sensibility and um, that, uh, then steers the production in a certain direction. You could, I could probably give the same idea to four different designers and they would come up with four different interesting takes on it. So it's kind of how it works. And when you uh, first started writing with 12 Dreams, which was a play, was doing musicals something that was in your mind at that time or did you originally? No, but I, that play was, um, Let's see, it was commissioned by a group called the Music Theater Performing Group, which I think is no longer in, uh, but they were also a kind of a group that supported avant-garde um, works, you know, and um, like Richard Foreman, and I, I know they did some wonderful work um, 
with choreographers as well. So the, when I did the very first production of that, it was much more visually skewered towards the dreams. And I worked with a composer, Alan Sean, uh, who scored the entire show. So it wasn't musical, but it was certainly a play with music. Oh yeah, yeah. And so how did uh, March of the Falsettos first enter your life? And well, that was, um, I had done a, another play at uh, a very off Broadway at the time, Playwrights Horizons Theater, and uh, William Finn had just done a musical uh, that he had written called, I want to say it's Four Jews in a Room Bitching, but that was actually the title of what became March of the Falsettos. I'm trying to remember, In Trousers, it was called. And so Andre Bishop, who ran the theater at that time, Bill had another show he wanted to do, and he introduced him to me, and Bill saw my show, Table Settings, and thought it was directed like a musical. So that's how I ended up directing my first musical. And what was your collaboration with him like in the first sort of full-fledged? Oh, it was hilarious, pretty much, Charles. I mean, um, we these were days when the, uh, Andre Bishop said, well, here, I'll give you four weeks of rehearsal, and here's this 90-seat theater, and you'll put it on for a month after the four weeks of rehearsal. That was it. We didn't have a show. We had about five songs, four or five songs, no book. And these were just characters that he kind of invented. And um, so it was a really blank page. And uh, I guess one of my contributions was bringing the boy into it. I don't know if you know the tale, but the bar mitzvah boy. Uh, and, you know, trying to find my, my goal was to take these rich characters that he had and um, find a kind of through line um, storytelling wise that was all told in song. So um, it just grew uh, again, very much like the avant-garde shows I saw downtown, just um, we had no set design at all. I would just say to my set designer, oh, well, let's paint the floor red, you know, look like a chessboard or not. Or, and then I'd say, well, I need, I need, uh, you know, a chair, put it on wheel. I don't know. I just made these things up. Go in the basement, see if you can find a couch put it on wheels, you know? So we worked with all the props and stuff that was in the basement. And then eventually he would swap it out with, with objects, you know, he would go by. And so there was some coherence to the visual look of it all. So it was, I've never worked that way again. And it was um, great fun. And there were no expectations because we were just a couple of young guys fooling around. And um, so it was quite extraordinary that it ended up uh, fortunately, at that time, I believe Frank Rich became the critic of the New York Times, and he was my age and Bill's age. So we were young minds working together, and I think the older critics at the time couldn't quite wrap their head around it. But uh, Frank's review gave us a real launching pad um, and kind of launched our careers. And I'd be curious to ask throughout your career, how do you feel about critics and their role? Well, I mean, when you sign up to do this, they, they, you know, that's part of the uh, pact you make with our business. Um, I stopped reading reviews quite a long time ago, but I do want to find out about them and know about them. You know, you can't stick your head in the sand. Um, but I find that um, 
a reviewing written after the fact. There's nothing I can do with the information because the show's already open. So I thought, well, why torture myself after a while? Um, when I started getting some bad reviews, I thought, well, I don't want this floating around in my head. So, but I understand it and I, I don't begrudge them. Um, you know, I think, um, it, as I said, it's just some, a reality of our business. And uh, I think sometimes uh, critics, uh, depending on the critic, can be absolutely insightful into your work. And other times I think they just don't get it. And that's what you have to, uh, you, you can't like them when they like you and not like them when they don't like you. You just have to accept that that's part of our work. Thank you. And so to go back to um, falsettos, when you did take the two off-Broadway shows and merge them into one to bring to Broadway, how did you sort of go about expanding the staging or changing it to make it a Broadway show? Well, you know, it was 10 years later. So by then I had a whole lot more experience uh, in what I was doing because I had, uh, you know, directed a lot of other shows or uh, several other shows in between. So my grasp of knowledge was greater. Uh, I think I had done Sunday in the Park by then, in fact, by the time we came back to the sequel for Falsettos. So, um, but um, that had a different kind of visual take and, um, but it was certainly not put together under the same circumstances that the first one was. And of course there was an expectation about it, given the fact that the first one was warmly received. So um, it was fun going back to the same actors 10 years later, and, uh, and but we only advanced the storyline one year. So it was a curious, interesting process. And so one of your uh, most famous collaborations is, of course, with the late, uh, great Stephen Sondheim. And so I'd love to ask, were there shows that you either had the idea for or began work on with him that didn't come to fruition? No, uh, sadly, I would wish we had written more together, but it was one of those instances that some of the things that interested him really... I didn't feel connected to the ideas and some of the ideas I had like flying over sunset didn't appeal to him. And, uh, but we worked together on, um, you know, the documentary six by Sondheim and also the little docu stage thing Sondheim on Sondheim and, um, and remained extremely close friends. And uh, it, it is, it was unfortunate that we didn't really find something together to work on, but that's just, we had three wonderful, wonderful collaborations, couldn't be more proud of, and were unbelievably fun to do with him. And so how did you sort of go about putting together Sondheim on Sondheim? And like, what is the art of putting together a review? Oh, um, well, I have to think about that. Um, Somehow Barbara Cook was involved and I had originally set out to do it as a straightforward kind of musical review of Steve's work. And um, it just, I don't know, it's, I wasn't the guy for that. And there were other musical reviews floating around. So I didn't really want to replicate any of those. But when I, I got the idea of when the technology had advanced such that we could actually have Sondheim as literally a character on stage, then I thought, okay, this is fun. 
and we can, you know, what I wanted to do was share the experience of being in the room with them, with other people. So um, that was kind of what grew out of it. And then Beowulf did that amazing set. I don't know if you saw that production with, you know, I don't know, 60 television sets or probably more. Um, so that was how that came to be. And we enjoyed, uh, I enjoyed interviewing him. And those interviews also were used later in the documentary. So uh, I, I made it my business to kind of still work with him or be with him on working projects periodically, just because it was such a pleasure. And did you and Satan, did you sort of share in each other's fields? Would he help with the directing? Would you help with the writing or, or with the lyric writing? Uh, that's interesting. I would say to some degree, um, mostly a lot of his lyric writing not a lot, but a portion of was inspired by things I wrote in the book or discussions we had about what a person would be singing about. And I would always bring the model of the set over to him and, and uh, with the set designer, and we'd have a discussion about it. And um, certainly performances of actors was something we would discuss when we were in rehearsal and uh, so, yeah, I mean, we were lucky that we were just two individuals in the mix. Uh, you know, in a musical, you could have, you know, five. You could have a lyricist, a composer, a book writer, a choreographer, you know, um, you, you, a director. You know, right there is five people discussing one thing. But for Steve and I, it was nice. It was really just the two of us for the most part. And how do you go about the sort of casting process for your shows? How do you run an audition room? What do you look for? Well, you know, we do a lot of workshops. So that's great. Gives you an opportunity to kind of discover what you're looking for if you're not sure. And sometimes you'll have somebody do a reading or a workshop and realize it doesn't work with that particular type of uh, actor uh, for whatever reason, younger, older, you know, different kind of voice, whatever. Um, I think it depends on, um, it depends on what the role is, what the show is. Uh, there's no set method. I like to make actors feel as comfortable as possible and try to give them their best opportunity to, to be at ease and show me who they are and, and, uh, and get a feeling as to whether there's a simpatico that exists between us as we work on material. Uh, and a lot of casting is also done just by virtue of knowing actors and their work and, and uh, you know, making a judgment not based on an audition. And so um, in a lot of your uh, work, you've written about real people, a, such as um, Dirty Blonde or most recently Flying Over Sunset. And so how do you sort of approach bringing a real personality to the stage? That's a great question, Charles. Um, I think you, you have to tell your story, do you know, as well as their story. Um, and I think you have to find, walk a fine line of being, I think, true to who those people were, but at the same time, having them serve the greater story you want to tell, which may uh, become something that it becomes more fictional than factual. Um, and uh, a lot of those people, like you mentioned, people don't know very well anyway, you know? So they didn't know Seurat, the modern audiences didn't know Mae West very well. And um, same can be said for the characters. And 
in flying over sunset. So it gives you a little a little wiggle room on, on how you portray them on stage. And to me, the greatest compliment would be for people to see the show and then go out and buy a biography of these people because they're interesting people. And so to speak of a sort of book creating a show, what was the process like for you of um, adapting the famous book, Act One? How did you sort of hit on that as an idea? Oh, you know, it was a book I hadn't read and is so uh, held up um, as one of the great theater books, you know. So I eventually read it. I must have been in my 40s, possibly. And I would, first of all, I was struck by the beauty of the writing. I think he's a fantastic writer. And um, I don't know why I didn't, after reading it, go, gee, I want to turn this into a play, but somewhere along the line, I wanted to do something about the theater and I thought, well, why not adapt this book because it is a love letter to the theater. And I love the challenge of trying to wrestle that 400 page book into a, into a play. And those were characters that were just so rich. Um, so it was a, a real pleasure, you know, it was nice to adapt something. I always like to do something that I haven't done before. So I had never adapted anything. So that was an interesting, uh, interesting challenge. And when you're finding an actor to say play Mozart or play Cary Grant, are, how faithful are you to the way they really looked or sounded? Or I mean, you're influenced a little bit because you look at pictures of these people and you read their words. So, but you don't want to do uh, an impersonation of them. You want to find an actor who can capture the essence of them. And that's basically what you look for. Yeah. And so you've uh, directed revivals of many of your works, including um, Into the Woods and Falsettos. And so what made, or those, what made those two at those particular times, what made you decide to revive those? Well, for some, some naive reason, I did uh, Into the Woods because I didn't feel I did a very, you, you, know, you were freezing for a second. Oh. I, I didn't feel I uh, did a great job the first go round. So when I had the opportunity to do it again, I thought I would do a completely different design and a different production and rewrite sections of it and all of that. As it turned out, the design was different, but a lot of the so-called improvements that I wanted to bring to it ended up getting tossed out at the end and I began to realize the first production was just fine. So that was the lesson in that one. Um, uh, Falsettos was interesting because I wanted to do a completely different production and I wanted to figure out how I could do that honoring the invention of the first one, but reinventing it in a way for the second one. So those were the fun challenges in both of those productions. And since um, since audiences didn't get to see them, do you remember what some of the changes were that you wanted to make Jane to the Woods? Oh, golly. Well, the set had a major piece of scenery in the middle of the stage, which was a, a kind of rake that turned 360. And as a director, I designed something I could never get rid of. And that, I realized in the directing of that, that was a mistake, at least visually. And though there were some great moments that we employed it in, it never went away. So I knew I wanted to do, do something that uh, could really be more three-dimensional than that set was and something that could give the replication of the woods in a different way than that. That was a very modern kind of take. And the one we actually did 10 years later had a more kind of 
literal fairy tale feeling to it. Um, by that, I mean referencing a lot of illustrations of fairy tales that have been done through time and kind of uh, reckoning back to that. Um, and um, so that, that's the deal with that show. Oh, yeah. And in addition to your own works, you also directed a revival of Annie, which of course was pre-existing. And so what was the sort of new take you had on that or the reason for revival? Oh, golly. Well, I just thought that was an interesting challenge. And I, I was, you know, again, I was probably brought to task for this, but I was fascinated by the politics behind Annie and the notion of, um, like fairy tales, that this kind of piece that is all about people who are in poverty that end up rich in the end, which are really the story of many, many fairy tales where, you know, Cinderella's, you know, you know, scraping out the fireplace. Next thing you know, she's, you know, princess of the land. So that interested me in that period of time of the depression and whatnot. And so I wanted to not lose the magic of that wonderful show, but also kind of put it in a certain context. Um, and I'm not sure that was the best idea in the world when all is said and done, because you're putting it in an enormous 1700 seat theater. And, you know, a lot of people are not coming to see that. They want to see Annie. <laughs> so uh, it was an interesting challenge. I enjoyed doing it. And I love working with kids and um, it, it was fun, but I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure I would do it again that way. Let's just put it like to that. Ask, to uh, go up sort of to the present day, um, what are some of the changes that you've noticed in the way that theater gets made between the 80s and between now? Oh, uh, uh, well, I haven't really thought about it, tell you the truth. Um, I think it's more corporately driven, you know, now that the film companies have all branched out to maximize their properties by turning them into musicals. Um, so I think that's had a huge effect on what, and particularly in, in the world of musicals of what's getting produced. Um, and uh, so it's, it, it feels a little more, um, I mean, it was always a business, but it was a business of theater people. And now it's a business of corporate people in a lot of instances. Um, so that, that I would say would probably be the biggest I think the other thing I think is is unfortunate is plays have been kind of driven out. You know, I, I, I like to think that there were more plays new and revivals being done back in the 80s and the 90s. And uh, I, I'm thinking playhouses now often house musicals, where in the past, no musical could really afford to go into the booth theater, you know, but um, so I think that's something also that's that's changed. Um, uh, in the, at least in my period of time working in the theater. So your newest uh, show, of course, is Flying Over Sunset, which is wonderful. And so I'd be curious to know between the, or during the sort of long rest period of the pandemic, did you make changes to the show? Is the show that we're seeing now different than the one that would have opened in March? Uh, I didn't make changes then. I, I uh, we never got a paying performance, but we did have the dress rehearsal, which you were lucky enough to attend. And then I took copious notes and went to my office the next day and, um, I typed up all my notes, everything I knew that I wanted to do that I didn't get a chance to do, including rewrites and, and staging and 
visual visual uh, takes throughout the show. And then I just put that document in a drawer and I didn't touch it until we came back to work. So no, I didn't work on it at all during COVID. Oh, yeah. And what has it been like to return to theater? Thrilling, you know, I, I have to say I, I, I don't, one doesn't think much about theater going away. So it was a new experience for everyone. And um, I think you, all of us couldn't help but not take for granted the experience that we had and, and value it more that we were able to come back to it and um, see it, see it uh, realized and opened. And believe me, we were holding our breath and are hold, still holding our breath that, you know, now that COVID has returned, that it'll still be able to get through its run. Yeah, yeah. And so my very last question is, with such a legendary career, what advice would you give to someone just starting out who wanted to be a director? Oh, would that be you? <laughs> yes, yes, actually, I, I have always one. Well, I, I would say, why do you want to be a director? I think it's important to uh, at some point really figure out, gee, why do I want to do that? What is it that I feel I can bring to the experience? What can the experience bring to me? Uh, what's exciting to me about it? Do I like being the guy who has to make all the decisions or the woman who has to make all the decisions? Uh, do I like having to boss people around sometimes? You know, there's many elements to being a director besides the fun part of working with a writer and, and, and overseeing all of that. So uh, my advice always is, is just um, follow what your gut says, but at some point stop and kind of um, be clear on why you're doing what you're doing. And I try to do that uh, when I'm in the middle of a production, I'll try to stop and remind myself, why am I doing this again? And what did I wanna, you know, and, and get back to some of my basic instincts, which you can lose a lot of the time. Um, and also I think to be a director, you have to be a people person, you know? Um, and uh, I think I could have been a good psychiatrist too, you know, or maybe a therapist, I won't say a psychiatrist, but, you really have to help people get the best out of themselves. And that requires you to kind of begin to understand where people are in their lives and their career and how to guide them to places maybe they've never been, which uh, is what I try to do. And what I do is tackle things I haven't done before and maybe don't feel all that comfortable doing, but you know, you learn by doing. And um, so that would be my advice. Well, thank you. It's It's been an honor to meet you and to talk to you. Yeah, pleasure. And good for you for doing this. It's great. It's oh, thank you. So do you think you're going, I guess it's a little early for you to decide that you're going to study theater, you think, when you leave Hunter or? Yes, yeah, I want, always want to go to NYU um, to study directing. and. Really? Well, my advice would be don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think, I think, not that you shouldn't do that, but I think it's good to have a minor in physics or something, you know, just don't, you know, you learn, you have to learn about the world, or I would say if you're going to study directing, make sure that you take art history courses, you know, learn how, how to see and look at how uh, composition is made and how uh, colors used and and the elements of artistry that you're going to want to bring to your work and I find a lot of these programs don't even do that you know they 
they'll concentrate on maybe script, you know, breaking down scripts and that aspect of being a director. But I would say um, make sure you cover your bases in terms of getting a visual education.